Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nakam Siegel Network, NakamSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And what a week it's been in the political firmament. Uh, primaries, really some big primaries, August 2nd, and some big, big news going on with regard to marquee matchups on both the Democrat and Republican side that we've seen in a number of states, Arizona, Kansas, Michigan. Uh, I mean, these these are some really, really uh, interesting uh, Washington state, of course. I mean, there's just a really some very, very interesting races that we've seen that kind of show the state of both parties, meaning Democrat and Republican, as we head into the crucial 2022 midterm elections, kind of take a quick run through of some of these marquee matchups that we've seen and uh, some surprises, some not so surprises. Uh, We also see some very interesting, well, let's just take it from the top. And I want to first start by talking about something that was particularly, particularly interesting, uh, really, which involves no candidate at all, which was a referendum in the state of Kansas around abortion. Uh, Really a very, very wild uh, discussion. Sorry, a wild, wild referendum. In now that Roe versus Wade was overturned and thrown back to the states, the anti-abortion activists or pro-life activists in Kansas put a referendum on the ballot. The legislature put it on the ballot because the state Supreme Court in Kansas had determined that the Kansas Constitution had a right to abortion, and therefore they wanted to create a constitutional amendment, I think I'm getting this right, to ban abortion or to at least allow the legislature to ban abortion in the state of Kansas. So they figured, okay, we'll have primary day and we'll throw that up on the ballot um, in uh, August 2nd. Maybe there's not going to, maybe the only, the more hardcore People will come out and vote, and we'll see which which people do come out and vote in an August primary. And, uh, of course, we're having August primaries here in New York, August 23rd. Don't forget about those. Those are going to be really, really interesting. Uh, but we hopefully get to that later in the show. But what happened here? They had record turnout. They had such a huge turnout. It was like presidential-level turnout, and and it went down. It went down in a very, very big way in um, – uh, uh, it went down in a very, very big way in this uh, Kansas referendum, so much so that it kind of upsets the thinking of, well, it, it certainly should cause a lot of Republicans to kind of think that when they when the polling shows that Roe versus Wade was popular and overturning, I guess I should say that overturning Roe versus Wade was unpopular with the public. They should heed those warnings because clearly it was in a state like Kansas. We don't exactly think of Kansas as a blue state or even a purple state. It's a red, red state. This is the kind of state that no uh, Democratic presidential contender uh, even bothers to go to. But it also has a Democratic governor. We'll leave that aside because, you know, state dynamics can be a little bit different. But let's just talk about like the way in which this happened, it was not just suburban voters, not just urban voters who went ahead and uh, voted no on this 
constitutional, proposed constitutional amendment. It wasn't just those. It was rural voters as well. And you also have to look about the fact that two out of the those that voted, the breakdown, I mean, and this is the very, very interesting, courtesy of Steve Kornacki, uh, a great uh, data a- analyst, 463,592 voted in the Republican primary in Kansas. Only 276,383 voted in the Democratic primary. Another 168,772 unaffiliated voters came to vote just in the referendum because they couldn't vote in a primary because they're not affiliated with the party and therefore they didn't. So the Democrats plus the unaffiliated votes was a total of 445,155. 445,155, and the total no vote was 534,136. So that suggests that there were at least 20% of Republicans actually voted no on this amendment. Now, of course, you could have Democrats who voted yes, because there are pro-life Democrats, particularly in the, you know, in the Midwest. I mean, let's just not, you know, it used to be that there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat, even in Congress, uh, that you know, they've kind of run the pro-life Democrats out of the party. There used to be there were pro-choice Republicans. There are still some, but most of them are being run out of the party as well as both parties move towards the extremes. But this suggests, of course, that there is a huge crossover vote of people who want to maintain some semblance of abortion rights. I mean, now I think Kansas allows abortions up until 22 weeks, which is kind of the area that most Americans feel is okay, right? They feel that there should be some allowance, certainly some exceptions. And what they've seen is a lot of Republican legislatures kind of running to really ban abortion in all circumstances. I mean, there are Republican candidates running. I mean, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania in particular, and this is, I think we're the abortion issue will be a big, potentially big issue um, where you have a governor running with n- who at least is on record with no exceptions whatsoever. You know, look, I don't want to get in the halacha issues. I don't want to get into the Jewish issues of, of this, but, you know, just and I consider myself to be pro-life. But there is we are generally I'm certainly halacha and Jewish law is in a middle ground here versus the pro-life, pro-choice uh argument. If you want to say that we're closer to the pro-life stance, I would agree with that, but certainly not in a case that allows no for no exceptions whatsoever, because clearly we know that both contemporary and even going back to the Rishonim, we allow exceptions with regard to abortion. Um, uh, you want to say we're closer to the pro-choice side? Some would say that. Some would make that argument. I don't necessarily buy that argument, but I can see the argument being made. But what's the case here? It clearly shows that most Americans, most Americans want some kind of middle ground. They don't necessarily want a ban on abortion. They don't want that. And they don't want to go in that direction, particularly. And we see Republican legislatures and Republican lawmakers kind of running, running to enact more restrictions as quickly as they can. And I think that should be a cautionary, uh, a cautionary tale for them, a cautionary lesson of what happened in Kansas, and perhaps that will scramble some things. And we also see that clearly people are willing to vote on this one issue. They're clearly willing if when when there is a clear 
message that if you vote for this or you don't vote for this or you stay home, this will happen. That always motivates voters to some degree. Now, will that translate into a Democrat-Republican breakdown? Because does that mean that all these people will vote for a Democrat even though they supported when they when they rejected this proposal? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that go into people's votes, and these are votes for people as opposed to a referendum. Referendums are easy. People are a little more nuanced. We don't necessarily know how that will shake out. So I think the takeaway here is, number one, this is a galvanizing issue. No question about it. It is banning abortion is entirely is unpopular. And I think that that is something that Republicans need to heed heading into the midterms. I know that you know the base wants it and they're going to try again. Um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be there shouldn't be something in the way of restrictions, you know, the safe, legal, and rare. I think it was a great formula where that Bill Clinton said years ago, and I think it still holds true today, and that's really should where, but, you know, parties have abandoned all sense of nuance. But I think there is definitely a cautionary tale as we head into the midterms. Uh, at for that. Okay, now let's get into primaries there. And I think that the, you know, one thing that you have to also, I think, want to say there's a New York Times analysis uh, of there. Now it's the New York Times, so you don't want to necessarily show, but based on the Kansas referendum, right? What, you know, basic uh, demographics, breakdowns, you know, people and polling that's existed in other states, okay? And, and turnout numbers, the, um, you would actually have almost very even states like Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, West Virginia, Texas, you would have them North Dakota would be or South Dakota, Nebraska. These states would all be, you know, Kansas at 59 percent supporting abortion rights uh, or at least not supporting restrictions. You would have many of the states that would follow a similar trend that would also vote the same way. And now when we're talking about like California, New York, Oregon, Washington state, you know, with being the 70% range in this, with this kind of thing, we're talking about some very red states that given the breakdown of the Kansas voter that would be, have similar type of referenda. So, okay, well, let's go back to primaries and primary night and the big, if you're, if you're the big, well, one big takeaway is another Another congressman who voted for impeachment Republican went down in a primary. Peter Meyer in Western Michigan uh, lost his primary, uh, close primary, but uh, he lost. And for that, a really, really interesting. Um, now, Peter Meyer is a scion of a very famous Western Michigan family, Meyer Supermarkets, uh, very well known. He's young guy veteran was literally in uh was literally in congress for like hours i mean literally had just been sworn in when he went ahead and took his vote to impeach uh president trump that was the second impeachment vote over the january 6th uh over the january 6th insurrection riot whatever you want to say okay but the interesting thing here is 
that um, the interesting thing here is that his opponent um, was essentially John Gibbs, a, a former Trump administration African Amer- official, an African American kind of uh, entrepreneur, Silicon Valley, had a, had a good story, but he had no money. He raised absolutely zero money, and his campaign was basically entirely funded by the DCCC. Yes, that is correct. He was His campaign was essentially funded by Democrats. They ran a $400,000 ad buy for uh, John Gibbs. It was basically financing his entire campaign. Would anybody even have known that the guy was running if not for the Democrats spending money. And why do they do this? This is a been a this has been a consistent thing that the Democrats have done throughout this cycle, which is to promote further right election denying Republicans so that they're easier to beat in the general election. And this became a more competitive seat in the redistricting. It's, I think, a Biden plus eight seat. So you figure you're going to have John Gibbs instead of Peter Meyer. And Peter, you know, Peter Meyer would be the uh, guy who would be, uh, uh, you know, I guess the sacrificial lamb on, t- on top of this. And, you know, he would be the harder guy to meet, to, to beat. So therefore, let's kill him off in the primary. And that's a very cynical. Uh, nice idea. You figure, okay, politics is the art of winning, and so therefore we don't really have to care morally about what we do. I guess my issue with that, as far as number one, parties meddling in other parties' primaries, it's a little bit distasteful when you think about it, because why should me, as a voter, as a Republican, like I should be able to pick the person that my party wants without the other party meddling in what we do? But it's even more cynical than that because, you know, of course, the Democrats turn around and they talk about the Republicans destroying democracy and being against democracy and wanting to uh, overturn elections. And here you have a guy who didn't want to overturn the election, in fact, voted against his own president. He seems to be the ideal Republican for everything that you want, but yet you spend four hundred plus thousand dollars in order to defeat him in essentially financing his opponent's campaign. So how are you having it both ways? Well, look. Politics. There's a reason politics is so cynical, and that is how it is. I want to get to one of race now. We're since we're in Michigan, um, is this marquee race a Jewish, Jewish uh, Jew on Jew race, which garnered a tremendous amount of attention and a tremendous amount of money. One that you probably weren't following, but was an intense issue for the pro-Israel community. And this is the 11th district of the northern suburbs of Detroit, which is. The uh, which is the race between two sitting Congress people, Haley Stevens and Andy Levin. Andy Levin, the a uh, the nephew, sorry, the nephew of Carl Levin, longtime U.S. senator, and the son of Sander Levin or Sandy Levin, as he uh, was was better known, a kind of the leading Jewish political family of Jewish Democrats in the state of Michigan, a name that was, you know, well-known throughout. And we have this, uh, so Andy Levin was this paradigmatic progressive Jewish member of Congress, Uh, not just a, a J Street guy, but somebody who would be out there together with Rashida Tlaib, also a member of the 
congressional delegation in Michigan, but giving comfort to Ilhan Omar and giving comfort to AOC and giving comfort to the, the, the squad and the progressives, you know, squad adjacent, not a member of the squad, but squad adjacent, as they say. And, you know, Levin was uh, certainly targeted um, by the pro-Israel community because of his stances. Now, he, you know, I think we talked about this on previous shows I feel that he was the one who made an issue of his Jewishness. He made, or his, uh, the fact that, you know, they were, you know, the fact that they were attacking him, you know, the, the right wing APAC. This was the guy who talked about all the dark money that was going in. In fact, though, he was taking dark money as well. And, you know, he was, he, he introduced a, a bill last year that would have restricted Israel from using U.S. taxpayer dollars to expand and settlements, and he continued to defend, as I said, Rashida Tlaib on a regular basis. You know, at, with you know, kind of the some of my best friends allowed her to say how some of my best friends are Jews and Jews are with me, etc. Now, the pro-Israel lobby, meaning APAC and United Democracy Project, APAC is now their PAC itself, and others, Democratic Majority for Israel, they made this a big deal because Andy Levin had been such a problem for them in Congress of you know, really being a far left Democrat. And he really made it about, I feel, you know, if you look, you followed this, um, you followed this race, he made it about them wanting to run a non-right-wing Jew out of Congress because they didn't, they were afraid of kind of his voices. Now, Stevens won with a very decisive victory, 60 to 40. This was supposed to be, um, it was supposed to be a close race. And, you know, APAC put $4.2 million into this race. The question is, you know, what would be, you know, what happened here? And, you know, why would this, um, you know, why does this matter? You know, why do we have to have this internal kind of Jewish debate? Why is the Jewish money becoming the factor? Why do we have to have to say, why can't this just be a regular discussion? Right, there are outside groups involved in every race. People put money into races that they care about on issues that they care about. We don't always talk about the fact that there is, has to be a Jewish conspiracy element to it. And you, you, if you read, you know, some of the stuff on the left, you know, it's like the Intercept has their has their headline: APAC defeats Andy Levin, the most progressive Jewish representative. And, you know, at the same time, then they have a subtitle, but the Israel lobby couldn't take out Rashida Tlaib. Well, I don't know that they made the same uh, effort to it, but Levin was the one who you know, said it. He said, you know, he goes on MSNBC and says, I'm really Jewish, but APAC can't stand the idea that I am the clearest, strongest voice in Congress standing for a simple proposition, that there was no way to have a secure democratic homeland for the Jewish people unless we achieve political and human rights for the Palestinian people. Well, who's going to disagree with that? I mean, that's probably true. There is no way. But at the same time, if you suck up to somebody like Rashida Tlaib who doesn't believe that Israel has a right to exist, that's not consistent with what you're saying. So, you know, and, you know, Levin it makes a big a big deal about that. Oh, he's a Zionist and my family and I'm a, she was a shul president, you know, and why are they coming after me? I'm Jewish, etc. And that's it. Now, well, look, it's because of your policies. I mean, you basically made yourself you know, as a self-identified Zionist Jew, and I'm Zionist, 
you're actually and who is supporting Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar, who do not believe that Israel should exist and have gone out of their way to support BDS, which, of course, doesn't believe that Israel should exist. You have made yourself that person to go ahead and do that. You know, it, it's it's kind of amazing that you want to have it both ways. Of course he does. I mean, that's the cynical proposition here that many of the anti-Israel Jews have or the J Street crowd. I don't know. You know, well, they, they say they're always always that oh, we're Jewish. We make comical. We're, we really want what's best for Israel. But we also make common cause at the same time with some people who don't want what's best for Israel. And, well, we have to stay close to them. You know, so as I said, squad adjacent. Um, and, you know, they don't acknowledge how the left doesn't moderate their tone. It's not like the BDS movement accepts the state of Israel, that they accept the you know, right to exist. I mean, Jamal Bowman, a member of the squad who visited Israel, was thrown out of the DSA. The Democratic Socialists of America have made it. I mean, they said you cannot visit Israel. You can't. They made that a condition of they, they don't allow their indoorsees uh, in the New York City Council to visit Israel. They single out Israel. It, there's nothing more clear than anti-Semitism. But a, a guy like Andy Levin doesn't call that out. And he doesn't say that because I guess he feels that, oh, I can be friendly with him. I'm sure that there is a good reason for the things for why he does what he does. And he thinks about that. So I guess we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one there. But, you know, that is the, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, where that is. And, you know, we've talked about the idea, uh, you know, that there is this on the Republican side, you know, there's the Trump side and there's the non-Trump side. And, you know, Trump had a very good night, particularly in Arizona, it seems, that his gubernatorial um, pick uh, Carrie Lake uh, seems will seem to well, it's very too close to call right now. If interesting thing about Carrie Lake, she said that um, uh, she said that the election was going to be fraudulent even before it happened. Which uh, you got to find interesting. Blake Masters uh, for for U.S. Senate, uh, his uh, Secretary of State pick uh, looks like Fincham. Seems like he will, and he also defeated Rusty Bowers, who was term limited as uh, Arizona Speaker of the House and was running for state Senate, uh, Bowers kind of knew he was going to lose. And Bowers came to testify at the January 6th commission that he was pushed to uh, declare or to try and uncertify Arizona's 2020 election results. Uh, overall, a pretty good night. Uh, in Missouri, that was an interesting Senate race because in Missouri in particular, you have a... He, he, Trump endorsed two Eric's, Eric Schmidt, who won, and Eric Greitens, who came in third. Um, we'll have to say that. that. That was just a very strange primary altogether. But the fact is that the president, President Trump, went ahead and endorsed uh, two Eric's at the same time as therefore preserving his uh, thing. But I want to go back into a second, talk about the Democrats for a second, because we've had this struggle between moderates and progressives. And, you know, if you look at you got to chalk one up for the moderates in the in this Michigan race, but some of these really key races, the progressives have done have done okay. Um, you know, in the swing seats, I think what we're tracking right now, it's been eight to three moderates. Now, this is not a swing seat, 
uh, the uh, Levin that it's a heavily Democratic seat. And that's actually why Andy Levin came to that race in order, uh, came to that seat in order to run and took a member on member primary uh, because the seat that he was in before the redistricting became a heavily Republican seat. And I'm sure that he felt he was too progressive for that. Um, but we had, you had some certainly progressive victories, which uh, Henry Cuellar, which just happened against Justice Jessica Cisneros in Texas. And, um, but, you know, one big loss was progressive was Kurt Schrader in Oregon, who lost. Um, and, you know, uh, Pennsylvania Senate, John Fetterman defeated Connor Lamb. That was definitely there. So you have a couple of those. And the safe seats, the safe seats, uh, meaning those that are definitely going Democrat in the fall, in the midterms, uh, you have a different one. You know, moderates lead, but only six to five, uh, you know, in of, of those. These are the ones, you know, a moderate one in, the sa- in, a, in a safe seat, like in Ohio 11, that was a marquee race. Chantel Brown defeated... Nina Turner, um, but Summer Lee in Pennsylvania in that in that Pittsburgh seat. Summer Lee, who was back, who was uh, uh, who was back by all the progressive groups, defeated Steve Irwin. That was a race that the pro-Israel community put a lot of money into. So there is definitely a struggle going on for the future of the Democratic primary, and that struggle seems to be a lot centering around who is pro-Israel and trying to elect pro-Israel candidates. And APAC and Democratic Majority for Israel have been very, very strongly putting money and investing into that, as as they should. I mean, there's no reason that you should not participate in politics uh, to the level that you think is uh, appropriate. And, you know, some of these headlines, as I said, you know, this is not, as I said, The Intercept, the far-left uh, publication, as opposed to acknowledging that Haley Stevens, a sitting member of Congress, a young, moderate member of Congress, doesn't say that Stevens defeats Andy Levin. APAC defeats Andy Levin. And that is the, you know, that's the the takeaway they want you to have, uh, kind of as they had in Maryland with uh, former uh, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, who who was defeated in Maryland, in a suburban Maryland seat that they also invested in, you know, she also made it about the outside dark Jewish money coming into politics. And that seems to be the progressive mantra going forward into that. Um, As we close out, I just want to talk about the battle royal going on in Manhattan. This is the for the 12th congressional district. And, you know, as I said, this is the primary is coming up August 23rd. That's two weeks from now. And it's quite remarkable what will um, that you have two heavyweights of the Democratic Party, Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, both committee chairs. Uh, Jerry Nadler headed the Judiciary Committee, Carolyn Maloney heading the government oversight. And you have uh, Siraj Patel, uh, who, according to his own polling, he's run before against Maloney, uh, is kind of surging into a close third place in this race. Who knows who's going to show up? It's August 23rd. It's Manhattan. A lot of people uh, are elsewhere when uh, when Election Day will come. So they had a debate this week. Uh, Nadler, showing his age somewhat, uh, had to sit during the debate. That was a little bit interesting. But the big takeaway there is that they asked everybody – I mean this is the money – kind of the money quote from this. So they asked everybody that – whether uh, you'll support Joe Biden in 2024. And only Patel said 
Yes. Uh, Nadler says, too early to tell. And Maloney says, uh, Maloney says that uh, I don't think he'll run. And, you know, not great if you are talking about the leader of your party. And, you know, these are not like young politicians. So I'm not sure if this is a little ageism going on. It's kind of weird that in that type of district, the district that I know Biden had to won by by 30, 40, 50 points that you would be knocking the president of the United States at that time. And, you know, just a lot of shade being thrown back and forth uh, by Maloney at Nadler and Nadler at Maloney. I, I thought this is a was a great, um, <coughs> a great line about Maloney being furious that Nadler came uh, to credit for the Second Avenue subway, which is runs up the east side. You know, there's a big, always big east side, west side rivalry. And she basically said, I do. She came because he came to take credit. Uh, a couple years ago for the Second Avenue subway on in her district. <clears throat> and she said, I do not know of one project he has brought into the West Side. That's what his constituents tell me. And he was not at the groundbreaking. He was not the ribbon cutting. He's not at any meetings I had with the MTA. We had hearings on it in the city and he never came to any of them. He's lying. And I, I guess you see the gloves are off and we'll see what happens over the next two weeks. So politics uh, is very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, Bill de Blasio dropped out of the New York 10 race uh, in downtown Manhattan and in Brooklyn. So uh, we will see anything goes in politics these days. That's it for this week here on Spin Classy on the Knuckle Single Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks, Allison Josephs. 